How easy is it to be distracted from God's word? Look at someone and say, don't be distracted. How many of you almost had a heart attack this morning? We're just keeping you awake in church and reminding you how the, the enemy wants to steal the seed. He always wants to steal the seed because he hates it when the word of God gets planted within your heart. I want to ask you today if you've ever had someone nag you so much that eventually you gave them what they asked for, even though you wanted to say no. Now, if any of you are a parent, you have to say yes, right? Because you know what it's like to have the three-year-old saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. It's like, go on and on and like, please, please, please. Like, we all know what it's like, right? When we have that like kid and you're like, no, no. And like on day one, you're good. Like on day one, you're strong, but then by like day four, you are worn down and you're like, just take whatever you want. Just stop asking me, right? Ever had that feeling? Maybe for you, it's not a kid. Maybe it's for you. It's like your friend who really wants you to go on a date with that person. And they are convinced that you guys will be a good match. And so they just keep going on and on and on. And eventually you're like, fine, I'm going to go on the date. But it's not because I want to. I just want you to stop asking me to go on the date, Right? Maybe you have someone that like, they work for you and they're asking you to change something in the company and you're like, no, we're not going to do that. And then they get like, their Mikey's along with them to like all join and they're like asking and asking and eventually you just give in because you just want them to stop asking you. Maybe you have a spouse that's begging you to go on a holiday to the coast and you can't afford the holiday to the coast, but they are begging and begging. So eventually now you find yourself at like 10 at night looking for like short-term loans, right? Like you're just like... Just, I'm going to do anything right now to just satisfy my spouse because they just keep nagging me. Or perhaps some of you who are visiting us here at New Life Church today, let's give our guests a hand. Maybe some of you who are here as guests, you came here because you have a friend who wouldn't take no for an answer. And they're like, no, it's not really my thing. I don't really do that. But they just kept on and kept on and kept on. And now you find yourself sitting inside this church. And it's not so bad, right? Uh, let's just give them a hand one more time. Good to have you here. We know what it's like to be nagged to the point where we lose our resolve and we change our mind. But here's a question I want to ask you today. Can you do that to God? Can you nag God so much that he changes his mind? And if you can, should you? Now to answer this question, we're going to look at a character in the Old Testament by the name of Balaam. Everyone say Balaam. Balaam was this guy, famous prophet. So famous, in fact, that he even got the attention of the kings. And there's a king in specific we're going to see, King Balak. He's the king of the Midianites and the Moabs. And uh, he's got their attention, and this is why. The Israelite nation had just defeated Egypt, which happened to be the most powerful force on earth. And now guess where the Israelites are? They're camped on the boundary on the plains of Moab. They're right on the king's territory. And it's reasonable. These guys are worried. If, if, if these guys, the Israelites, have just overthrown the most powerful nation on earth, what's to stop them from doing it to us? And so the people get really worried that the Israelites are right here on their border. And of course, King Balak, he's worried, right? Like, what's going to stop these guys from just overthrowing us? So he comes up with a plan. King Balak knows of a guy, a prophet, a very powerful prophet, Prophet Balaam. And he knows that whoever this prophet blesses is blessed. 
And whoever this prophet curses is cursed. And so he sends his dignitaries, his royal noblemen. He sends him to go and look for this prophet. And he sends him with this massive reward, this big offering. And they're trying to get Balaam to come back so that he can bless him and curse the Israelites. It's kind of weird when you think about it because King Balak is looking for a man of God to curse the people of God. Now, right off the bat, big guess, where do you think God stands on this? Like, do you think God, who's made a covenant with his people, would use one of his own prophets to curse his own people? Does anyone think God would do that? Like, no. Of course not it's going to do that. Like, it's just logical. Of course not God is not going to curse his own people. And you would think Prophet Balaam would know that. But instead, we see him going to God with this request Again and again and again. In fact, we're going to pick up the story together in Numbers chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, join me there. And let's read together from verse 8. Prophet Balaam, he's quite intrigued by this offer from the king. And he said to the king's men, Won't you stay here overnight, Balaam said. And in the morning I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. Now, His response sounds pretty similar to most believers I know today who would say, well, let me pray about it. Let me ask God about it. Let me take this request to God. And doesn't it sound so holy and so right? Like that just sounds like such a good Christian response. But I love how God starts to respond to Balaam. In fact, he first says this in verse 9. That night God came to Balaam and asked him, who are these men with you? Like, who are these men visiting you? Now, does God know who they are? So clearly God's being just a little bit sarcastic right now. He's like, who are you even hanging out with? Like, who are these people? Like, are they our people? But I'm like, are they, are, they, are they part of Israel? Like, these are the enemies of Israel. Like, who are you hanging out with? And it starts to show us something really Interesting, right off the bat, did you know, church, that there are some things you don't have to take to God because you should already know his heart? There are some things you don't have to pray about. Guys, you do not have to pray whether that new woman in the office is is someone that God brought to you when you already married. Do you have to pray about that? No. Why? You should already know the heart of your father. You don't have to go to him in prayer about that. Guys, you don't have to pray about whether or not you should just do the bribe and get the deal because, you know, then you'll earn a lot more money. You can help some poor people and give some to the church. I mean, you can do something really good with that contract. It's just going to cost like this thing under the table. Let me, just go, let me just go ask God because just maybe. No, you don't have to pray about that. There are things we don't have to come to God because actually when we come to God with things where we already know it's a no, you can imagine it's quite offensive to the heart of the Father. What do you think? Just my kids. Imagine my teenage sons came to me and said, Hey, Dad, um, just want you to know my my friend's doing drugs and I'd like to know if you'd mind if I try with him. Man, I would like... I would have many emotions. 
But one of them would be disappointment that he would even ask me because it would show that he does not carry my heart and like he's not getting what I'm trying to establish in his life and in our family. And if you know the heart of the Father, I want to tell you there are things that too many Christians are praying about when God has already told them in his word what the answer is. And Balaam is doing this, and why is he doing it? Because there is a reward on the table. There is a reward on the table, and suddenly Balaam is not seeing God's love for Israel as a good thing. He's seeing it as something that's in the way of him being rich. Suddenly Balaam knows that God's love for God isn't a blessing. Now it's an obstacle. Because there's something that he could get out of the deal, and now he can't get it because God loves Israel. But he's just going to chance his luck anyway. He's going to see if he can twist God's arm, if he can get God to change his mind. And so I love how bluntly God answers that question in verse 12. God makes it as clear as daylight. He says to him, but God told Balaam, do not go with them. You are not to curse these people for they have been blessed. And so the next morning, what does Balaam do? He obeys. And on the surface, it looks like he's doing really good. It says in verse 13, the next morning, Balaam got up and told Balak's officials, go on home. The Lord will not let me go with you. What's interesting is this, this, this holy response. Does it show obedience? Yes. But does it show submission to God's will? No. I want you to note how Balaam responds to them. He's like, you know what? I would do this, but God won't let me. It's a Lord, like if he was fully in submission, if God's will and heart had become Balaam's will and heart, Balaam would have gone and say, hey, those are my people. Those are my brothers. I will not curse him. Are you out of your mind? I'm, a, I, I'm part of the kingdom of God. And you cannot come against like, but there's none of that. Instead, he's like, hey, guys, if it was me, I'd say yes. But you know, God, he's like, he's being a spoil sport. He's running us off my phone, stopping me from being rich. Have you ever felt like that? Like God's will for your life is bumping against your own desires? Balaam's having that moment where he's like, God, I'm going to obey you, but really this isn't fun. He says to the king's officials, yeah, the Lord won't let me do it. It's like a child responding to his parents' laws as a burden rather than a blessing. Not seeing their parents' rules as wisdom, but seeing their parents' rules as an obstacle. That's exactly how Balaam is responding right now. If God would let me do what I would, but you know my hands are tied. Because just God won't let me. And so these elders return to the king. They tell the king the news that Balaam won't come. But this is a king. He's not really used to being told no. And so he knows everyone's got their price, Right? And so he's like, well, go back with more. And so he sends even more distinguished men with an even better offer. And this is the offer they make to the prophet Balan. They say to him, the king says that he will do whatever you tell him to. Wow. Suddenly the prophet gets to be put in charge of the king. Now, it's like one thing for your neighbor to say, hey, anything in my house is yours. But when a king says it, guys, like anything you want, like you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I mean, you can imagine how tempting this must have been for the prophet Balan. Now, had the prophet 
already heard the answer from God? Yes. Did he have to pray about this a second time? No, he didn't even have to pray about this the first time. But what does he do? He goes back and presses on the heart of God. And why does he do this? Because the king has touched on his weakness, his desire for power and wealth. And here's a good time for me to remind you that just like the enemy tried to use Balaam's weakness to get him to disobey God, the enemy will try get you to use your weakness to try and disobey God. This is how we operate. In the book of James chapter 1, it tells us in verse 14, but each one is tempted. So by the way, it's coming. You will be tempted. Each one of us is tempted. How? When we are drawn away from who? From God. We're drawn away how? By our own desires and we are enticed. There's two steps to this. Number one, we're drawn away by our own desires. The desires that are natural to you and it's going to be different to everyone. For example, if I go back to the previous example, if I do offer everyone in this room drugs, many of you would say, no, I don't do that. I'm not even interested. It doesn't touch my own desire. And so to be an easy no for you. For some of you, you would really struggle to say no because it's right in line with your own desires. But James 1.14 says we're drawn away by our own desires and then we are enticed. How are we enticed? It is the devil who does the enticing. He's the one who does the temptings, but with no desire, there is no enticing. He uses your own desires to entice you to disobey God. And so he's looking at what are your desires? What are the things you want that are ungodly? What are the things you desire that draw you away from God? Those things, those desires that draw you away from God. He's looking at those things. Maybe your desire for, for, for money or for power or for popularity or for possession or for, for your ego. Like what are those things that you just desire within you? But you know, these are desires that draw you away from God. Well, those are the things where the devil, he's going to fan that flame and he's going to entice you. He's going to create opportunity and circumstance and he's going to do something to entice you so that you can move away from God. He does it to Balaam. He does it to us. And suddenly the offer they make is right in line with Balaam's weakness. The offer for anything he wants. And yet listen to Balaam's response. He doesn't just send them away and say, hey guys, I've already given you an answer. He tells them this in Numbers 22, 18. But Balaam responded to Balak's messages. He says, even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. Again, guys, on the surface, looks very spiritual, doesn't it? But what he's actually saying once again is, God won't let me. I'm powerless against God. I mean, I'd love to. But God won't let me. He's not going to let me in. He's not going to let me do this. God is restricting me from the life I want. How many of you have ever felt that? God is the one who's standing between me and that promotion or me and that relationship. I'm powerless against God's will. Balaam knows what most people in church know. It's two things. Number one, you cannot willfully disobey God and expect blessings. Number two, if you continue to willfully disobey God, there's going to be judgment. Now that's 
two things that, that that amount of information is just enough to get us into trouble because if we stop there, what we start to do is say, okay, God, if doing this doesn't get me what I, what I need from you, then let me try something else. Can, can, is there a way, like, is there a way within the bounds of your will for my life? Like, is there a way I can, like, change the formula and twist your arm and can I ask again? And it seems to be exactly what he's trying to do. In verse 19, it says, he says to these officials, stay here one more night and I will see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. I mean, like, he's really trying to chant it, Right? And it's quite crazy because what is Balaam, does he really think that more money is going to change the mind of God? I mean, is he really believing that God was just holding out for a better offer? He's like, God, you know, they come back with more money. What do you think of it now? You want to curse your people? Like, God, do you have a price tag? I mean, if, if maybe you're rich, God, like, would you be willing to curse your people now? What a ridiculous request. But he has so much desire for wealth that it's making him even unreasonable with God. And church, we have to realize that when we desire something more than God's will in our life, often even our faith becomes unreasonable. And we go to God with requests we should not go to him with. And this is for me where the story gets really interesting. Look at someone and say, get ready. Because something happens here now that really starts to challenge our view of God, I think. Because it seems like God does have a change of heart. And he gives in to Balaam's request. In Numbers 22.20, it says, That night God came to Balaam and told him, Well, since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but only do what I tell you to do. Suddenly, God is saying, Well, go. Suddenly, Balaam is getting the answer that he was wanting from God. So he gets up the next morning, and he goes, and now do you see that he can say he's walking in obedience? Because God is the one who told him now to go. It turns out God was holding out for more money. But listen to God's response in the very next verse. In verse 21. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going. So he sent an angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. God was angry? And I think when you read that, you're like, what? Hang on. Didn't God just tell him to go? Like, why is God angry now? Like, God's not double-minded. Like he's not going to tell him one thing, but then be upset that he does it. But yet that is exactly what happens. What is going on here? And it turns out we can start to find the answer to this question in the other pages of scripture. One of the places we can start to see how God operates is in this book of Ezekiel chapter 14 from verse 4. We see the people of God coming to request something from God. But when they come to request something from God, they actually have idols hidden in their hearts. The thing is, guys, God sees that heart and he sees those idols. God says in verse 4 of Ezekiel 14, tell them this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and they have fallen into sin. And then they go to a prophet asking for a message. 
So I, the Lord, listen to this, will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. I will answer them according to the idols in their heart. Church, there's a lesson for all of us here. It turns out that if you are asking God for something and he has already said no, then you are more interested in your will than his and there is an idol in your heart. And if you do not willingly lay that idol down, what will God do? He will give it to you so that you can see that that idol does not truly satisfy, that idol does not fulfill, that idol is not what you want. If you are pursuing and pursuing, if you are desperately in need of something from God and you are resisting any counsel or any, any advice or God's word and you're just pursuing it, God might just give it to you. Be careful what you pray for. You might just get it. God will give you that idol so that you can see it is not the answer and it is not what you need. And within the provision of God, church, we see God shaking idols out of our lives. And it might come as a shock to you, but it's not the only time this happens. We see with the nation of Israel, desperate for a king, desperate to be popular and look like the world. All the other nations have a king. Why don't we have a king? They go to Samuel the prophet. Samuel, we want a king. Samuel takes a request to God and God says, no, you don't need an earthly king. Are you crazy? If you have a king, it's going to end up taking your sons and your daughters and your land and your vineyards and your groves and charging you taxes. But the Israelites, when they listen to Samuel's response, they're like, we still want a king. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8, 19, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king. <laughs> what was God's response to this? Here's what I find amazing. God gives him a king. And he doesn't say, he doesn't stay uninvolved and say, well, you guys just do what you want then. God is the one who chooses the king. Do you see that God chooses to give the Israelites a king even though it's outside his will? And he's like, well, if you want this so badly, let me give it to you and I'll even choose the ones. And he goes and anoints Saul and David and the other kings. God handpicks the kings he doesn't want. And and exactly what God said would happen, happens. The king takes his sons and their daughters and their land and the groves. Eventually, they land up captive to the Babylonians. God answered their prayer, even when it was against his will. And it even happened in the desert with the Israelites. Yeah, in the Israelites, the deserts, every morning, they're eating this manna. And, I mean, this is good food. You must remember that manna, man. Elijah survived on two cakes of manna for 40 days. This was some pretty good food. But the Israelites were moaning, we want meat, we want meat, right? Like a little kid wanting juice, we want meat. And so God eventually gives them the meat. And he does it through a miracle. In Psalm 78 from verse 26, it says, he released the east winds in the heavens and guided the south winds by his mighty power. He rained down meat as thick as dust, Birds as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. He caused the birds to fall within their camp and all around the tents. I mean, guys, God is doing a supernatural miracle of provision. Do you see that? There weren't these kind of birds here in the desert. They didn't have guns to shoot them down. So God comes, supernaturally provides these birds. And you can imagine from their point of view, they're like, he's answering our prayer. We're finally getting our meat. But keep on reading. The next verse says, 
Psalm 78, 29, the people ate their fill. He gave them what they craved, but before they satisfied their craving, while the meat was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed his strongest men and he struck down the finest of Israel's young men. God supernaturally and miraculously gave them what they wanted. But because they knew this was not within God's will for their lives, they faced judgment right away. And it means something, guys, that sometimes God's yes for you means no. You know, I've heard some Christians who say, well, like, I just go with whatever open door there is. Like anytime there's an open door, I'm like, yeah, that's God. I mean, anyway, I don't have to pray about it. He's in control of my life. He's sovereign. If he wants us to happen, then it will happen. So I'm just waiting to see if it will happen. And if it happens, then I'm going through the door. Like that's my sign. You know, so I pray for the job. And if I get it, well, then I must get it. That was God's will. And yet actually when we look in scripture, that's not how God operates. Sometimes God will open the door to your deepest desire. He will open the door to your idol to see if you're going to walk through. What does God want? When the thing we want the most is offered to us, he wants us to take pause and to say, okay, God, not my will but yours. I'm even willing to lay this down. The thing I've been praying for the most, the thing I've been trusting for the most, the thing I have been loving the most, I now have the opportunity to have it. But do you want me to have it? What God wants is a life where we surrender everything to him. When we ask for his guidance and leading in everything we do. Where we don't say, God, well, every good thing that comes, like everything that I've wanted, every, every desire I've had, God, when you give it to me, I'm taking it. No, no, no. What does God want in your life? How would this look like in everyday life? Well, let's say you're a guy and you're dating a girl. And... You're like wanting to get serious. And your, your Christian parents, they come and they say, hey guys, we're concerned. We don't think this is of God. We don't think this is a healthy relationship. Your Christian friends say the same. Your Christian brothers and sisters say the same. But you know that persecution is romantic. And now you and the person you're in a relationship with are like, oh, I'll give up everything for you. And it's us against the world. And you know, all they've done is made it super romantic. And so now you're, you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and she says yes and you get married and five years down the line, you're like, why is this so terrible? Well, perhaps God gave you what you asked for because you wouldn't listen to his no. So he gave you a yes. Perhaps some of you, maybe, maybe you're a guy and you're, you're looking for work opportunity far away from your family and, and your wife is saying, hey, I'm just, I know you're wanting that, but I'm super uncomfortable with this. You're going to be away 250 days of the year. We'll never go to church together. We'll never pray together. Like, and, and sometimes, I'm not saying this is never God's will. I'm saying like God's giving this wife a sense of like there's no peace. And the pastor's saying, hey, this is a bad idea. And the family is showing concern. But, but they're just pressing in, God, I want it, God, I want it, God, I want it. Then they get the job, and two years later, they're in a hotel room with a strange woman thinking, how did I get you? We have to be so aware of the idols in our lives, the things that we are striving for, because very often we will pursue that idol at all costs, and we won't listen to God's no to the point where he might even just say yes, so he can root it out of your life. 
He can deal with it. He can show you that that thing does not satisfy, that it does not fulfill, that it is not truly what you want. The reason God does this is to restore intimacy with you. In fact, it tells us in Ezekiel 14, I read it earlier. I'm going to read the verse that comes after it as well this time. It says in verse 4, This is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and have fallen into sin. And then they go to a prophet asking for a message. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer their idolatry deserves. And I will do this. Why? I will do this to capture their minds and their hearts of my people who have turned from me to worship their detestable idols. If you don't surrender your idol willingly, God might just give it to you so that you can see it does nothing for you. I mean, just look at the story that Jesus told with the parable of the prodigal son. It's exactly the same thing. This little boy goes to his dad, says, Dad, I know you're still alive, but I want the money. It's his idol. I want it more than you. I want it more than relationship. I want it more than anything. I want the money. The father gives him the money. Even though he knows he's not mature enough to handle it and spend it well, even though he knows it's probably going to mess up his life, what does a boy do? He goes and indulges in his idol until he finds that it has no meaning for him, no satisfaction for him. It's only once that idol was dealt with that he could come back to the father and suddenly now he had the heart for the father, a heart for relationship, a heart for intimacy. But that idol needed to be dealt with first. And so I want to just ask you in your life, like what, what are you craving for? Like what do you want in your life? You know, an idol is anything you like more than God, love more than God, want more than God, are passionate about more than God, spend time thinking about more than God. Like, what would that be? What's, what's competing in your heart for that space that God should occupy? You might have even found in your prayer life, you have been asking for that thing again and again and again and just resisting any no tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. It says, So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality or impurity or lust or evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person. What's greed? I want more. Scripture says it's idolatry. Worshiping the things of this world because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Greed, church, becomes idolatry. Wanting more, and it's not just about more money. It could be that. It's about wanting more. Not, I'm not content with life. I want more position. I want more power. I want more sexual lusts. I want more. I want more. I want more. It's any time that we're not content in what we have with Christ that we will pursue the more somewhere else. That we're so desperate for something else, for that more, that we will ignore the no of God and pursue him and nag him until we get a yes. What do you draw strength from? What satisfies you? What gives you hope? What fills your tank? It should be God. You know, when we return to that word in Ezekiel, we see that God was saddened by the fact that his people came to him with a request, but idols were hidden in their heart. And I wonder when he looks at us like, I know this is the heart of God. He wants you to be close to him, but your idols will ruin your intimacy. 
If you remember two weeks ago, I ministered that we are now the tabernacle of God. And I reminded you that within the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, was the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of the covenant was a mercy seat. And that mercy seat are these two cherubim that face each other. And in the middle of the wings, that would have been where a nation would have put their image or their idol of God to worship God. But God said to the Israelites, I don't want you to put anything there. Leave that space blank. That is to represent me. And church, I want to remind you once again, you are now that tabernacle. And that holy of holies, that holy place now dwells within you. And I want to ask you, is there something in that space? Is there an idol there in that sacred place of worship, that place designed and allocated just for God himself, that place that is holy, that place that gets your attention and your passion and your time and your thoughts and your love, that holy place within you? Is there something other than God there? Because if you are going to truly get close to God and draw intimately closer with Him, we've got to be willing to lay those idols down. Otherwise, God might just give it to you so that you can see that thing can do nothing for you. It cannot fulfill. It cannot sustain. It cannot strengthen. It cannot provide. It cannot love you. Only God can do those things. If there are idols in your life, I want to encourage you to lay them down willingly. Don't resist God's no. Submit your will to His. In fact, can I pray for you? Can we pray together? Father God, I want to just, I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that by Your, by your power, You would reveal the things in our hearts that we desire more than You. God, I want to speak against idolatry in the name of Jesus Christ. Father God, I know you do not want us to come to you wanting anything else just but you. Nothing else as we sang this morning. So right now as we seated here in the presence of God, I want to ask you some questions. I want you to truly examine your heart and it can be hard to do. It can be painful and uncomfortable, but please do it anyway. I want, to, I want you to really answer these questions. What satisfies you? What gives you hope? What things give you pleasure? What makes you feel more secure? Is it your bank balance? What makes you feel successful? Who or what makes you feel loved? Who makes you feel accepted and worthy? What things can you accomplish that make you feel like you've arrived in life? Because church, anything other than God in that space, yeah, it's dangerously could become an idol. Father God, would you help us deal with the things in our life that hinder us from closeness with you? Reveal to us the places in our life where we love something more or like something more, or more devoted, or more passionate, God, than with you. God, we don't want to pursue our idols so much that you end up just giving it to us so we can learn our lesson. Instead, God, we want to lay them down right now. And so if that's you, if you want to pray this prayer, you can join me. And we're just going to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Your will, not mine. Your will 
not mine. You are the one that satisfies. You are the one I look to for success. You are the one I look to for fulfillment. There's nothing else I need and no one else I need but you. I lay down anything that comes in competition with my heart. Anything, even the things that look good, God. I lay down people and family and ministry and my striving, my career, my wealth. God, I just lay it down now. And I put you first. I empty that space. I make it ready for you in my heart again. It's yours and yours alone. I love you first. I love you most. Draw me back to that place, God, where there's nothing else in the room, just you and me. I thank you, Father God, that we can lay these things before you. And God, we will submit to your nose when we hear them. We will not resist your will. And I pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.